0: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance We are adding webinars, continuing education courses, discussions, and more in our academy and forum on the reg. So to join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. And this podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Shoot us a review if you like us. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. And we got a whole crew today. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator, a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. And he is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Happy to be here, as usual. Hey. We also have... Happy to have you. (laughs) We also have John Flagg, no, I I meant it, who John, if you'll remember from episode 20, is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He's the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. So stay tuned for the schedule on that. How you doing, John? Doing well, man. It's good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning. And we have Mike Amato, who you'll remember from episode 19. Mike is a physical therapist at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness with the All-Star crew they got going there and an extremely valuable member of the Clinical Athlete Forum. What's up, Mike? Hey, guys. What's going on? It's living life, man. Oh, Yeah we have a really interesting topic today we're going to be discussing misinformation specifically the correction of debugging debunking of it and we're going to discuss a paper to guide the discussion and probably throw in a couple more which is titled how to unring the bell a meta analytic approach to correction of misinformation it's authored by nathan walter and sheila murphy I'll just give a brief overview of the paper, and then we can discuss in more detail, get the conversation started. So this was a meta-analysis of 65 individual articles that ended up in the in the sample that looked at the overall effect of various techniques to change people's beliefs and de-bias misinformation. And they also looked at various factors that may alter that effect. Specifically, they had two questions in mind. When they were looking at all of these different studies on, on misinformation, number one was what was the average effect of corrective messages on beliefs in misinformation? So that was the main outcome that they were looking at the change in somebody's beliefs. And two, what factors moderate that effect on correction, uh, of correction on change of, of beliefs in misinformation, such as sample characteristics like. Student population versus non-student population, the region of the study, message topic. So, were they talking politics? Were they talking health, science? The nature of the information. So, was it constructed misinformation? As in, did they just kind of make it up for the study, or was it real-world misinformation like the world is flat, or uh, vaccinations cause autism, things like that? Let's get the, the two big ones out of the way. Yeah. The study design. <laughs> were they looking at Uh, the change in somebody's beliefs in a laboratory study where they can control a bunch of different variables or was it more of um, kind of field studies or online uh, study design? And they looked at the the biasing technique. So there were several of these. We'll probably um, talk about these more as we go because that was part of what they were looking at was which technique can offer the biggest effect. And uh, let's see here. Effect type. So was it immediate versus delayed? So they would set up these studies where they would um, either delay some of the debunking. Um, Also, they would test whether warning, forewarning somebody before they got the misinformation had a, a greater effect versus trying to debunk after they were subjected to the misinformation. So all these different potential moderating variables that they were looking at. So what they found initially, to no surprise, was significant heterogeneity in effect sizes across all of these studies but after some statistical correction they did find a, a significant mean effect for overall for just correction on belief so they did find that we can change people's beliefs to some extent what was noteworthy though to me was after that statistical correction to account for artifact they estimated more than 40 percent of the variance in effect size across these studies could potentially be linked to those various moderators that we talked about, which was what they looked at in the second question. So with that, they found the debiasing technique that had the largest effect was appeals to coherence, which again, we'll discuss a little bit more, but basically that means they're providing an alternate explanation for why and how misinformation comes to be in the first place. And then there was a smaller effect for fact checking which is basically just rebutting the misinformation with facts and then an even smaller effect for appeals to credibility which was interesting i and i had some thoughts on that but um there's a whole lot more to this paper i'll stop there uh john what'd you think of this piece
1: uh i really liked it it's always been uh a struggle for me uh, especially as i've gotten more involved trying to figure out the best approach to go about misinformation you brought up two big ones that i tend to troll a little bit on facebook being flat earthers and anti-vaxxers uh but i I like especially that they broke it out into different types of subjects um i know we're talking about this particular paper but mike shared with us was that a chapter out of a book yeah it's a gigantic book that i
2: have oh that i have not read but i've read a couple chapters of it
1: um but it also helped kind of fill in some of the blanks when it came to some topics are a little bit more complex because they have small nuances, and we talk about we'll talk about cohesion later. Um, but that people can link misinformation together, and there's other ones where there's not as much of that cohesion. So I really liked it. Um, I don't. I still have to to keep digging into a little bit more of it to kind of garner my own strategy, but it's definitely. Gonna
0: help me out, Mike. What was, what was the name of that book that you just held up for the people who the, probably are watching? Um,
1: it is the
2: International Handbook of Research on Conceptual Change. So it's a collaboration amongst a lot of different authors, um, and it's all like research bases, lots of references. Um, I actually first learned about it from reading a lot of uh, Lorimer Mosley and David Butler's uh, stuff because they talk about conceptual change and belief updating a lot, so
0: what'd you think of this paper
2: um i'm gonna take the pessimist approach to this podcast and <laughs> but i know i liked it but it it highlights the difficulty of what i think we do especially in our field given that they had a hard time essentially correcting science related beliefs and a hard time correcting um beliefs in real world kind of misinformation, which is what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, And that, which made me, it made me think about why that seemed to be an issue. And that's why I kind of reached for the um, conceptual change research, because I think it's more complicated than just correcting information when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, And we can dive into that if you guys want.
0: Oh, for sure. Jared, what do you, what do you think?
3: I like it a lot. Um, and I think, as I was reading it, it brought me back to uh, to just some concepts that came up in in some psych courses as I was going through school. And then also, as you guys have already mentioned, the stuff that we encounter all the time. Um, so it was really really kind of cool to see the differences that these researchers found. And the explanations that they put forth as to why we might see, you know, perhaps greater success or greater effect of correcting misinformation with this approach or with this particular timing of the correction attempt. Um, and then also talking about things like the continuous influence effect and um, misinformation persistence, they like said. But basically just how um, misinformation uh, and how it's perceived initially uh, and maybe some other – how misinformation is perceived initially can influence things after the fact, even after we've identified that as misinformation. We can talk about that as we go, too. Um, and post-event misinformation is inca- or seeing something or, or experiencing an event or, or witnessing something and then encountering misinformation after the fact and having that influence your recall of that event. Um, that's not a new phenomenon, but uh, I think it's relevant, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly as we try to 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 correct this misinformation in the rehab world or, or other um with regards to other topics as we talk to people. So I, I liked it a lot. I think there's a lot more that I want to kind of sink my teeth into
0: as well. Yeah, there's a there's a ton here and to Mike's point, it does highlight some of the difficulties. And I just want to throw out a couple things in the paper. Misin they define misinformation as the cases in which people's beliefs about factual matters are not supported by clear evidence and expert opinion, and then they defined all of those variables that could affect the the ability for us to change those beliefs as moderators. And so these were variables that enhance or attenuate the success of de, of debiasing or debunking. The The different techniques that they used are interesting because it's maybe what we could look at as... as clinicians, you know, is how can we educate people? What are our techniques to try to change people's beliefs if, if we feel that we even need to? And um, again, the one that seemed to have the biggest effect was appeals to um, coherence, which was essentially, or, or just coherence in general, which was essentially providing an alternate explanation to the misleading information. And they this in the discussion and kind of their conclusion was that if you just throw facts at people, that doesn't give them a, a context to why their prior beliefs were wrong. So, if you just start, if you just start throwing spewing facts at first of all, that person on the other side doesn't know if those are facts or not. You could, you could have the misinformation from their perspective. So, the idea of coherence is that you, you perhaps explain. Why the alternative belief is is misinformation? How it's misinformation, and then you provide your facts. Um, so that was kind of their recommendation in regards to to how to spin that. But I did. It is tough because science, the topic of science, what didn't even show a statistically significant effect to be to be debunked, and um, health actually had a greater effect than politics. Um, I'm not sure they, I don't think religion was one of the topics, but I would be willing to bet that religion would have been a real tough one. Um, so you kind of go down the line and I'm thinking like, what makes it really hard to change? What, what about a topic makes it hard for people to change? And, you know, they didn't really talk about this, but when you, when you add in people's emotions, um, it, it, it can make it potentially tougher uh what are your guys' thoughts on the reason that certain topics are harder to that people are more deeply rooted in in, in certain topics
3: well They talked about it a little bit with regards to the differences that they observed between real-world misinformation and constructed misinformation. And suppose that it could have been, say, with with constructed information, there's no involvement. Like, if you hear about a warehouse fire, which was a common example, it's like, okay, there's this supposed warehouse fire. You have no investment in that. It's not like you know the people that work there or know where it happened. And then with real-world misinformation, um, the authors were saying that... This likely has big implications for one's social identity, especially when it got into the political realm. Um, and uh, prior, um, I forget the word they use, but prior exposure or investment—you know how much I took it to, to mean like how much skin in the game you have if someone's going to be talking about misinformation about or regarding something that you think or that you say to people or that you use on the regular you're probably going to be a little bit more resistant to change than if you're not that invested and if you haven't spent that time and the money to to learn
1: that in the first place so with science for me at least the way i kind of look at it there's and they say it in the the book that mike gave us the pages to thankfully um there's there's two things that I've always kind of looked at. There's either a knowledge gap where they don't have the foundational knowledge to understand the topic fully enough to have a decent bullshit meter, right? They just it's not there. Um so maybe coming with fact checking or something like that can help fill those gaps and help educate. The more difficult one and, and one I think we, we see more frequently with clinicians is that their model is flawed. They have a a slew of ideas or they have a, a number of ideas that are all flawed. So they have a bunch of concepts that don't necessarily jive with current research or current measures. And it becomes a little bit more difficult because that's where that coherence and cohesion come. They have a series of ideas that link together that are all inherently flawed and we have to address them and show a different loop, basically, to get, we have to address each point systematically, which becomes very difficult because if they wanna argue and we don't have a counter argument, it can fail. If their likelihood to argue makes it more difficult. Um, So you have to address each one of those individual points. So I can understand why science would be difficult for me, it's not all the time, but a lot of the times, at least in our realm, patient interaction is more of an education thing where clinicians is more of a flawed model. Mike, what do you think?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in all this, and like it, it highlights maybe some of our, um, our limitations from our own education in school and then how we're prepared to kind of uh, – you know kind of help the situation either on a small level like patient to patient or clinician to clinician or even like a broader level um when it comes to like you know science communication and social media but like before I go on to the the Mickey Kai chapter I kind of delved into the Lewandowski paper that they cited for the continued influence um misinformation because they essentially separated the misinformation by either, like, a story that has, like, incorrect facts or the um, continued influence. And for us, it's always going to be, like, probably continued influence. And so they would talk about all the factors that could um, essentially influence that, and that would be media or social media, um, vested interest groups, government, politicians, uh, fiction. The fiction thing was actually pretty fascinating to me. They are talking about how, like— how much fiction can influence like science belief and like there was a a michael Crichton novel was like cited in like a like <laughs> in a uh u.s senate committee you know and so like it, <laughs> it it's fascinating how, how these things can become like reality um uh, mm-hmm. trickle down like, one of the points they made was like everyone knows that like people in england and australia driving the left side of the road because of watching movies but like you know like i've never been to england but i know they drive on the left side of the road because i've watched movies about that but that could easily be wrong um so there's all that where like that's a hard thing to overcome like they had staff that like in 2009 61 percent of american adults looked online for health information um and then they looked at a youtube video uh survey for h1n1 influenza and that you know 61 percent of the videos contain useful information, but 23% were misleading. And so there's a a lot of stuff out there that we're having to kind of, like, deal with. And it's obviously bigger than just, like, one person. So that's one side of the difficulty of it. And then kind of going to what John said about, like, you know, is it just, like, they have wrong facts? Or is it that they, like, literally don't have the model to construct on? And a, a big thing that Mickey Kai talks about with the... Different subtypes of misconceived knowledge is like making a category mistake, and how, like, I think this is maybe the issue with science is that in school, we're taught very linear processes, like kind of beginning, middle, end, you know, A plus B equals C. Um, and a lot of things in science are more complex and more emergent than that. And that's where a lot of these things start to fall apart because, like, you can't just, you can't just the linear process of how they know something, you have to actually give them a new way of thinking, and that is, like, humongous. Like, that is just, that's education on, like, a lowest level.
0: Yeah, and education as a generic moderator didn't seem to actually be beneficial because they, in the introduction of the of this paper here, they talk about how they thought that perhaps a student sample there was some evidence that a student sample would be a little bit easier to change beliefs because they're not, they're educated, they're not as deeply rooted in things. And then later on, they did find an effect student versus non-student sample. However, it was less about them being a student and more about the either it being a laboratory study versus a non-laboratory study, and even more so it being constructed versus real-world misinformation. And then they go on to say that Those in in the topic of politics, those who were more educated were actually, the effect size to change their beliefs was smaller. So in that realm, the more knowledge they had, it seemed the more deeply rooted they were in their biases. And I can kind of see that too from a clinical standpoint, when you got somebody coming in that has some a little bit of a working knowledge of the human body, they tend to you know, kind of call the shot sometimes it's almost like they know just enough <laughs> to be a problem uh, that that kind that kind of thing. and um so yeah, education is much more nuanced than that, Mike, to your point. And I also found it interesting that one of the debiasing techniques in regards to appeals to credibility had this had a smaller effect than fact checking. And, uh, and coherence, which in the beginning, right initially that surprised me because I, I tend to think that people just appeal to authority all the time and if you know if a famous person says it that they, it must they must believe it. but the author suggested that people actually gravitate towards authority figures who already who hold their already preconceived beliefs. So whether you're doing it subconsciously or not, you're maybe just, you like the famous people who already think the way that you think. So it's not that the famous person is changing your thought processes. You're just kind of searching for those people who you already agree with that, that kind of like confirmation bias. So that we don't want to appeal to authority anyway, but it just shows that this stuff is a little bit more complicated than that. And they also, go on to talk about some of the publication bias because they had 10 studies in the sample that weren't published that they included in the sample and they mentioned that when they compared the published studies to the unpublished unpublished studies the effect size the main effect size for changing beliefs was even weaker and so that may speak to a little bit of a drawer effect or some of these studies showing that maybe we don't have a, a a real big effect on changing people's beliefs don't ever get published and you know so that so that can just kind of bias making us think that we're better at changing people's beliefs than we actually are yeah and this goes back to like a lot of the stuff
2: that i'm sure you guys listen listen to the you're not so smart podcast but the backfire effect and how people have beliefs and seek out facts that confirm it. They don't just like sift through all the facts and then update their beliefs. It's more of just like a top-down process where you have the belief first and then support it with the facts that suit your belief.
0: As As kind of I- I- about about like I.e. Inst- press like on certain things <laughs> and don't press like on other things. <laughs> you know, like you're sticking it to them. Ah, I'm not liking that shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're gonna no. yeah, feel this one.
1: Yeah. Um John, are you gonna say something? Yeah, hey, we, we talked about the backfire effect a little bit before you came on, like um just the auxiliary backfire effect as well with social media now, where if somebody has that top down look and they have that appeal to authority, where if you challenge that, then a thousand of their followers go, Oh, well, who's this jerk? And now they're entrenched. Um, because In an isolated manner, like we're talking about with the lab, where you can sit there and you can work through the process with that individual and hopefully change that belief, that's individual. So a thousand people reading an Instagram thread or a Facebook thread, it might not hit all those same spots. And you can get backfire effect with a bunch of followers now who are further entrenched and further going to, I don't want to say it. Or are further going to perpetuate that guru, guruism and, and keep pushing that forward, which is not what we want.
3: Yeah. Um, this came up in uh, the second article, which was debunking a meta-analysis of the efficacy of messages countering misinformation. Um, and it seemed that, or the authors had found that uh, misinformation persistence was lower when the misinformation was presented to people who were more likely to counter-argue the misinformation from the get-go um, and the persistence was greater if they were less likely to counter-argue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that if, you know, if let's just take the group of the four of us, if we were presented with, with something that didn't quite seem right or or somebody who had at least the the processes or the, I don't know, the... Yeah, the mental processes to, to try to, to unpack a claim being made or information being presented and to see, does it seem coherent? Does it seem to be coming from a credible source? And these other sort of um, guidelines or um, sort of landmarks that the authors of the first paper put forth, maybe it, it probably turns us on to the fact there could be some something a little bit amiss here and l- lessens the chance that if it ends up being wrong, that that we hold to that that idea. But if we're if we're less likely to do that, it makes the the likelihood of that persistence greater and then subsequently makes it harder for anybody to
0: try to 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 correct that misinformation down the line. Let me ask you guys a question because this is something I think about a lot. And I've discussed with various colleagues and, and the opinions seem to be across the board. From a clinical standpoint, if we're talking about our athletes' patients' beliefs, to what extent do we need to change them? My question stems because is it our is it our job to change somebody's beliefs? If if sometimes it, it is, why are there cases where maybe it's not relevant to their goals, even though we know that their, their beliefs are based on misinformation. And the reason I'm asking this is because sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, I get caught up trying to change somebody's beliefs because they're my beliefs. And I'm trying to kind of push that. You should, you shouldn't think about this this way because it's not right. And that's my strong bias. So I want you to not think about it like that, like foam rolling. I want, you know, I don't want you like it. I don't want you touching a foam roller because I'm annoyed by foam rollers. So you shouldn't do it either. Um, when in, in reality, you know, I use that as an example because it's a, it, <laughs> just because. But when in reality, if they want to foam roll, fucking let them foam roll. And just, you know, as long as they're doing the things that that we're talking about, and maybe that's the education point. So the question is, is there a line? You know, at what point do we... Do we let somebody kind of hold whatever they want to hold on to as long as we're, we're on the right track?
2: Yeah, well, that brings up exactly what I wanted to talk about um, and how, like, there's a couple issues with the belief chain stuff. Like, one, like, whose belief is correct? You know, that's a loaded argument um because you know as science develops we know like things are always gonna be proven to some effect incorrect as we kind of go on. Uh two, can we even change their belief? And three, like does changing their belief have an effect on the overall like treatment outcome? Um and so I think there's like some some extent of like providing somebody a better path in terms of um helping themselves in terms of like being an active participant in the treatment and getting them to kind of recognize that. And, but this kind of goes back to the old trope of like, you know, a good teacher doesn't, you know, teach you what to think. They teach you how to think. And I think that's like kind of where I'm leaning these days is like, I'm less and less concerned with the details and more concerned with how do I get them to think a little more, complexly and kind of get them to think or embrace a little more uncertainty with this process because of how little we truly understand about like pain and injury on like a macro scale
3: i want to jump in how do you how do you find people respond to that because people that's not a sexy sort of response (laughs) like hey mike what do you think about this you're like we don't really know and here's why we don't know it's like screw that i going to go to Instagram and find my nice, discreet little answer. Do you, do you run into, re, into resistance that way? Or are most people I don't know, yeah. somewhat open to it?
2: I, I think I've gotten better at framing it because, like, you have to give some sort of answer. Mm-hmm. I think, like, what it comes down to me is I present this kind of um, scenario where there's a lot of things at play. Like, there's a lot of factors. And... Um, mm-hmm. And what we do know is that there's a small subset that we can probably change and that might have an overall effect on your, you know, function or pain or et cetera, et cetera. And this is like what I know. And this is my, these are my interests. These are my passions. These are my biases. And, um, I am just kind of open with them about that. And, uh, you know, if we kind of look at this as a process, like we'll get there rather than trying to like debunk and build up Mm -hmm.
3: certain aspects. Yeah. To, to, Throw my my answer into the hat to your question, Quinn. I think, um, I think for me it's a question of what what am I trying to do? What, what's my purpose as a as a PT or as a rehab professional? And that's probably something along the lines of hopefully facilitating uh, the process um, for the for a patient or a client to reach their goals, provided their goals are realistic and within the scope of practice. When I say realistic, I mean realistic in general terms, but also given the time that we have to work with. So it's happened a number of times in the last, say, month or two, where I've been working with people, maybe I've just met them on on day one, and through the subjective history, I find out about a bunch of things that, a bunch of beliefs that are probably, that seem incorrect or that, or that are incorrect, but they're not super relevant or pertinent for us at the moment. You know, there's, there are probably a few things that we're, going to come up or that will come up again in future and i kind of make a mental note that there's a good chance i'm going to have to talk about this and sort of formulate a rough game plan as to how i might want to approach that but there are a few other things that you know foreseeably won't impact what i'm trying to do with that person and it that doesn't lead to me or i make it a point to make sure that i don't end up um say, being complicit or agreeing with with narratives or information that I either believe myself to be wrong or that I know to be wrong based on whatever information we, information we have at present. Um, but I also don't. I try not to pick the fight unless it's inevitable. Like if I'm kind of backed into a corner or I really need to sort of try to help this person cross that barrier because of what we're ultimately trying to do, then I'll start to try to do that. <clears throat> but uh, well, like Mike had said, um it, it's it's difficult. So I think I've I've found in the last couple of years the importance of picking one's battles
1: wisely. So that's the first thing I was gonna say is I try to pick my battles as most as best as I can. And then one of the things that I really try to do off jump street, especially with initial evaluation, is to try to set expectations for the length of time that change and regression to the mean actually happens because if I can do that and start to develop trust, then I can actually pick bigger battles later on down the road. I don't think there's a line in regards to battling some of these narratives. I think some of them aren't going to make that much of an impact in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, when you use the example of foam rolling because I'd prefer my athletes to not foam roll. However, where I try to get them to connect the dots is looking at it in a in a greater picture, in a, in a much larger picture for them. So you feel as though it gives you this effect. Well, let's look at that effect. Is it actually doing anything for you here? And then it takes this amount of time to actually complete. How much time could you be doing something else that we can show a better effect for? Or you can get more training out of. Then we start looking at training efe- efficiency. So I try to I try to link those pieces together instead of going you know, thermodynamics bullshit. It's not going to do anything for you. Don't do it because um, then I'm going to then I'm going to face a lot of resistance. I can do that later on down the line if we've built a lot of trust, but it takes a lot of time to develop that as well. And if I don't set the expectation up front that hey, four months down the road this is where we're going to be, or, you know, this is a much longer process than the three days that you would like to recover from this. Uh, if I can get that expectation set, I think it opens the opportunity for me to de-bias a little bit better than doing it all at once.
0: That makes sense. It kind of goes to what the Walter paper was talking about in regards to fact checking, where just throwing a bunch of, a bunch of stuff at people may not, give them that contextual change and probably not the way that people learn anyway or or change behaviors anyway, all at once like that. And the, what Mike said was you're getting trying to get them to learn how to think. If you guys have ever had a, an athlete who you've had the benefit of seeing for an extended period of time, almost start talking themselves through things a little bit it's awesome they start you know you just you're just chipping away you're just kind of like redirecting every now and then when you see the ship really re- really veering off these subtle variations sometimes you just kind of pull back and let them let them kind of take the reins just like coaching like you don't give somebody a million cues at once you give them something subtle to think about and then you just step away and, and see what happens and then you start to get athletes who are like yeah I probably I probably overdose training this week. I'm feeling a little beat up or um you know, I I I threw in some or or maybe to talk about all the things that they used to deem as like the the fix and now they're starting to not do those things anymore. It's like, yeah, I just did more of my warm-ups. You know, I felt really good today and like you don't ha- you don't even have to say it anymore. You know, they're kind of steering the ship. Um I have an athlete who's notorious for going off program and doing like Another workout as their accessory work, like always, and I stopped. I stopped scolding them on doing that. I just started educating them on how stress and training load can have a cumulative effect. And so every time that person would come to me and say, "Yeah, my hip's starting to bother me. My shoulder's starting to bother me," I would just say, "Okay, no problem. Just remember, you know, we're doing a lot of extra stuff." And so that stuff all counts, you know. Just because it's not on my program, you're still doing it. And and I would just reiterate that point. And finally, he was just like, "Yeah, I hit my I hit my singles today. I'm I'm hurting a little bit, but I know I'm doing a lot of extra stuff, so I'm just kind of living with it." And I'm like, "Cool," because it is your fault. Uh, but it's it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's exactly what Mike was talking about. You teach them how to think, and I do. Th- I feel that that's what the Walters paper was was kind of showing with coherence having the largest effect because they gave an example of, um, and I'll just kind of read it verbatim here, when debiasing strategies rely solely on retractions, i.e. fact-checking, they run the risk of painting an incoherent image of the events. According to this logic, if someone believes that President Obama was born in Kenya, it might not be enough even to simplify, um, it might not be enough to simplify them with the facts. No, he, no, he wasn't and it because they, the other person says he was. So now it's just a pissing match. You get that on social media all the time too. This is what I think is facts. No, this is what I think is facts. And then it's just pew pew pew. You know, you're just, you're just shooting Instagram bullets. And then they go, they say, in addition, a successful correction would also include a coherent explanation for how and why the false rumor started. So People ask me at the end of an appointment all the time, well, what about this? You know, as they're walking out the door, oh, you know, should I still get my massages? Oh, should I, should I still do my stretching routine? Oh, should I still do my foam rolling? And instead of just spewing them with facts, we'll say, um, you can you can totally do those things. I don't actually care. Just know that they're, you know, as far as our long-term goals and, and providing some, you know, some lasting change, those things probably, probably aren't going to give us the biggest bang for our buck. And so we'll do these other things to make sure, make sure we're getting these other things in. And then if you want to fill in the gaps with some of that stuff, I got no problem with it. And then they might follow up with, well, why is there so much information on this stuff if it's really only providing short-term effects? And that's where the coherence part comes in because now you've got an opportunity to maybe explain why some of these false rumors start. Well, you know, it's sometimes stretching and foam rolling is probably just a little easier than moderating your training load and and... You know, doing these other exercises that don't have an immediate perceived benefit, but the benefit comes on over time. And so I think we as humans just we gravitate towards those short term fixes, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, that makes sense. And so you're giving them an alternate explanation for why those false narratives are in place. You're not spinning their world upside down by saying, no, you can't do that because this, this, and this. But you're providing that coherent message that can kind of explain the chain of events. Um, And then I think over time, to Mike's point, now they're more likely to substitute the the false information with the facts on their own as they're working through things and thinking through their own situation.
1: It's difficult to get people to embrace uncertainty as it is. One thing that I find is really powerful is if they give you a belief that's questionable, ask them why they believe that. Why, like, okay, why do you think that? Why do you think XYZ works for you? And if you can start to get them to understand the uncertainty in their own statements, then they can start maybe, hopefully getting them to seek out more information, but at least give you the opportunity and, and get their worldview to open up a little bit about some of this stuff because I mean we've all experienced that I think at this point uncertainty is unsettling but it's also reality there's a lot of times where we just go ah, I don't, I'm not entirely sure Yeah, no
2: one believes anything that they think is wrong like you know yeah. like that they're not like going out and like seeking wrong information and championing it so like there's they probably have good reasons to think why something they believe is correct um, yeah, and something interesting that happens here a lot, and it depends, I guess, on your clinic and your environment. Is that we have a pretty open environment in terms of like a couple of PTs working at a time with a couple of patients in. And uh, yeah, I think fostering that kind of open, non kind of non-competitive environment can uh, kind of encourage questions because like I'll, it'll happen. Like I'll get a patient, they'll just out of the blue between a the set, they'll be like, "So, what do you think about?" <laughs> like, it it's, you know, happened on Thursday And uh, you know, yeah, from Across the room I see Zach's eyes Light up and he like runs <laughs> But you know And then like, and then we can have like a Big conversation where it's like Not just one on one and I'm challenging Them it's like they're inquisitive And then like it's like three or four People are talking about it and mm-hmm. You know if you ask enough whys, Like a lot of things end up kind of Breaking down um, so it's uh, it, it helps when it helps when it's like a more more natural and more like kind of in,
3: almost like built up from the environment well, yeah I mean <clears throat> I think that, that ends up being really really helpful and is something that I'm I value a lot in a, in a clinical environment I've been in environments where I was I've been pretty much the black sheep and it hasn't been the case where I feel that way in most social interactions with my peers but I know that in terms of treatment, choices and explanations i'm definitely not saying the same things that my co-workers are saying um which can lead to you know some interesting situations but i was talking with a buddy who is currently at a clinic where there aren't any walls they're just curtains and uh it's happened multiple times to him where someone has asked him so what about ultrasound are we going to do any ultrasound as part of the treatment and my buddy stops knowing full well there are two other PTs, someone might be getting ultrasound right now as he's giving this explanation, but then he just goes into it and, and gives his thoughts, which I think is fantastic. And, and I, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Couldn't do it because confidentiality, but for the person getting the therapeutic ultrasound as this explanation is taking place across the hall, looking at the sound head and looking inquisitively
0: at the PT, <laughs> just, just seeing how that plays out, that'd be great. Well, hell, there's still a placebo effect, even if the person knows it's a placebo. It's true. They probably don't care. Oh, open label.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, I, is, this is this is one of those topics that like, and this is kind of like a kind of like a recency thing. But I don't know if you guys listen to the most recent uh, "Everything Hurts" podcast. About, like, yes, very good. Promiscuous expertise, and this is like one of those topics where I, I'm like, I try really hard not to. Just cause like it's so big and it's so dense. And like there are people that are like devoting their entire PhDs to, you know, trying to understand this. And so it's one of those things where like we have to deal with it, but I, I don't know how well equipped we are on kind of championing it.
0: There's the piece too where the pendulum can swing. If we talk about like how strongly we go at people and trying to change their beliefs. On social media, we obviously talk about all of the misinformation, and those who yell loudest tend to be heard, whether regardless of the information that they're they're giving. On the flip side, if you're on some type of crusade to just go out and destroy everybody that you disagree with, I'm not sure that approach is all that effective either, because the the debunking paper, Jared, that you talked about, the Chan paper, seems to suggest that sometimes the more strongly you come at, at someone, sometimes the more strongly they hold on to their preconceived beliefs. So it's like, it, it, there's a lot more factors in there. Again, it, it's it's along the same lines as the first paper of just like spewing facts at people. But um, sometimes that just doesn't work. And, and on online mediums where you, everybody's a lot more brave than they would be in person. You know, the, they come at, you can't, infer tone, but you can you can be as coarse in your text as you want to be with really no recourse. Um, sometimes I feel that those who look to debunk information on social media are doing so in a way that is more about showing people how smart they are, which to me is no better than the person that they're going after. But what are your guys' thoughts on We talked about uh, trying to debunk misinformation to our patients, but now we're talking about on a larger scale and social media in particular. Is it where is the line in regards to how effective we can be? And are we wasting our time in that medium? Are there better ways to go about it on a large scale?
2: I don't know. I, I mean, I've always been an advocate for, like, just trying to put out good or better information. And hopefully that can drown out some of the more reductionist kind of more false information. But I don't I'm not convinced that that would be even the best method either.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, and, you know, I, I wrestle with this regularly. I know that all of us do. Um you know how how what difference is it going to make? You know I can't remember if we talked about this before we started recording or after, but um, you know if if the reality is that it may not make much of a difference to anybody or to most people, and you you kind of weigh that prospect with the time and energy that it'll take on on your part or on one's part, and then you know is it is it worth it to try to. To, to correct this misinformation in this particular way, I'm not sure how well it sits with me. Actually, no, it's a lie. I, I know it doesn't sit well with me to, um, to think about not doing anything. Um, just recently, I've been trying to take some notes from, uh, from Zach uh, Gabor in terms of if there's somebody or, that I want to reach out to or have a conversation with, I might start by reaching out with a personal message. As opposed to putting it right in the in the comments, and I I don't know this is you know open for debate as to whether that's a good way to go or not. But I figure that if if I'm going to be challenging what they're saying, not everyone's going to love having the challenge thrown out to the public's public eye. You know maybe they they're a little bit less defensive and open to having a conversation if it's just them and myself, and if I make it a point to not seem super confrontational at the outset. You know, and try to make sure that I understand where they're coming from, make sure that I've understood what they've said properly. So, I mean, I don't know. I think that I think that we need to try to correct some of this misinformation. I don't know the best way to do it, but I also know that I don't like the idea of not doing anything because that just seems irresponsible in a way as as health professionals. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. I think... This is going to be a shameless plug, so be ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the first things we have to do is our best to intercept people before misinformation happens. Mm-hmm. So things like the clinical athlete forum, which you guys, Mike, are doing with Level Up Initiative, some of the podcasts out there. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of outlets for... Um, Good information, not, not that there's such thing as good or bad information, but at least trying to get people to think a little bit more critically before misinformation hits them. And I know forewarning in the paper wasn't super effective, um, but if we can get people to think more openly, then I think that's the kind of the first step. From that point, once misinformation happens, the difficulty is real, and trying to avoid the backfire effect and trying to, to get out there and and do some stuff on social media. I I tend to agree with Mike, the stronger the information that you can bring, the higher quality, um, the more digestible, hopefully it will reach more people and especially get to the people who just lack some of the, some of the foundational information. Um, If we can start to do that, I think that'll help. I won't say turn the tide, but at least make an impact. Um, For the other stuff, I do think on occasion we have to we have to go onto social media and challenge people. But we have to pick our battles there as well. Uh, It can it can be very unflattering in certain cases uh, and and fruitless. So,
0: I think. Consistency in your approach is important, um, and I and I think that really asking yourself, what are you trying to accomplish in regards and when we're talking about these types of discussions, especially on social media? Are you are you truly trying to accomplish change, or are you just responding to this post because you didn't have your coffee? You're already annoyed that you had to drive in traffic this morning and you plan on making like a couple quick fire rebuttal responses and then not touching this thing again for hours you know that to me that's being inconsistent in your approach because but now what you've done is you have put your responses out there for all to see and somebody could perceive that as you just being a dickhead and it only takes one time you know people's perception of you they they can shut off from you for, with one bad negative experience, and I think the difficulty in this whole thing is that it's like rehab. You you it, it's a cumulative effect over a long long time. So we have to be consistent in our approach for many 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 years to to see real change consistently, and it just kind of accumulates over time. So in twenty years. You know, we can hop back on the podcast, and I'll be uh, pretty pretty happy with how things have gone. And you know, and we're like so old that we just kind of like don't give a shit anymore. But then, but then the young crew is going to be talking about the same thing. So, it, it that's the difficulty in it is being patient with people and like answering the same question that you get from everybody else over and over and over because this is the first time that this particular person is asking you that question. So they don't know that you've been asked it a thousand times. So you, you do it the same exact way. You you meet them where they are. John, like you said, like you get an idea of where their beliefs are coming from and you patiently provide them with that information. And you can do that on a large scale when you have a community like Level Up, like Clinical Athlete, who are, I think, the, the goal with both of those two organizations is teaching people how to think and and um like that's the crux of it and so they can kind of come to their own conclusions and they can we're trying to teach people how to teach and that's that's how you do it right you teach teachers and now you, and now people can be their own teachers and they can teach and that's just kind of this pay it forward but if you're just trying to you know throw one starfish back in the ocean at a time it becomes a really uh, a really uphill battle, especially the the way that you do it. Um, and it become it can become more frustrating. I found that a, a few years ago when I was trying to be the internet debunker, you know, I've gone through those phases. I think we all have, where you're just like literally scrolling through social media, like, who can I f- call out today? What kind of a bullshit am I? And it's like an it's an angry way to be. And it's not sustainable. And that's how you get burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah kind of my, my thoughts on that? For sure. What else you guys got on this? It's like such, it's so big that it's like, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we covered a lot of the things I wanted to talk about. I think like, yeah, having people understand more complexity is like, I think, the issue at hand. And I think like everything just gets boiled down to something that's a little bit too reduced or a little bit too linear, and so a lot of it's lost in translation, especially with pain. I think that's like the crux of of pain and marketing and healthcare.
0: Do you guys find that the length of the plan of care corresponds to shifting people into getting them a little bit better with uncertainty or, or um, learning how to think a little bit better? Like if you've got a full six weeks with them, um, you know that you can kind of chip away at it versus if, I don't know, from coming from an insurance-based model, you know if you're only going to see them for a few visits, you're, you feel a little bit more pressure. Does that change your approach in regards to patient education at all, the, the length of care? I think it changes my expectations a little bit. I don't know if it changes my approach
3: per se, but I'd agree. I think if I've... If I'm dealing with somebody who says like, hey, I've only got, you know, however many hundreds of hundreds of dollars of, of insurance coverage, which translates to like, I don't know, five or six appointments. Okay, fine. Um, you know, I think I'm still probably focusing on the same things that I would anyway. <clears throat> but I think that chances are probably better that we're able to have the conversations that I think are important a little more easily and perhaps more frequently if I see somebody for longer. Um, you know, if we've got more coverage, or if they're just not that that fixed on x number of dollars of insurance coverage, then I'm
1: done. Um, I don't know. I think it probably makes it easier. I think time definitely makes uh, a difference. I'm gonna go back a couple podcasts and bring up one of the difficulties that Steph brought up with ACL rehab and the social impact that you have to battle. With a post-op ACL, where everybody has all these nocebic things to say with that particular type of injury, but you have six months to hopefully chip away at that, which is very it's very difficult in and of itself. But if you had six weeks, <laughs> it's a substantially different battle that you're going to have to to get over that misinformation. So. You're able to, to gain more trust with more time, and I think that's going to give a little bit more of an impact, especially when it comes to uh, what was it called Mis- misinformation or, or yeah misinformation persistence would probably decrease with a longer effect time at least that would what is what I
0: would hypothesize so: yeah it's just learning and behavior change in general it's habit formation and any of that stuff takes time. Yes. There was one on, on page three of the the first paper that we discussed. They, they talked about something that reminded me of social media. It says, Results from other studies indicate that the combination of facts and myths can be detrimental to debiasing, as, as people misremember the message and find it difficult to dif- differentiate between facts and myths. So, for example... During your initial evaluation, the person is on board with the plan. Oh, it all makes sense. Yes, thank you so much. Nobody's ever said this to me before. I've never thought about it this way. Um, you don't see them for two weeks. They come back. And then you kind of, you're regrouping and they say, well, you know, I couldn't quite remember what you were talking about. Uh, you know, w- it was this exercise, right? Or didn't you, what was that thing that you said about this? And you're like, oh, the most important thing that we talked about. And they were like, yeah, I, I couldn't remember, but I couldn't remember. But then I went on the internet and I started, what do you think about this blog? And it's like, whoa, that the whole initial evaluation where you thought that you guys were on the same page just completely went out the window. And, it, but again, if you take a step back and think about it, that was, that was one little snippet of time versus their entire lifetime of accrued beliefs and education and expectations on their end. And, and so we get frustrated like that, but it's just not, when you think about it in that way, it's no surprise, you know? And I think the, the healthcare models don't necessarily lend themselves to that type of thing unless it is like a post-op, which is awesome. Because first of all, it's awesome because tissue healing is awesome, and you know. And if, if it's like, if people are in pain, they're like, "Well, yeah, I just had surgery." They expect to be in pain, and um, it's it's cool. But when you've got like somebody that you can only see two or three times who have this chronic issue and all these 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 beliefs about their imaging and all these things, it just becomes really really difficult. Especially with social media, because we talked about this whole between facts and myths. A lot of social media, a lot of the stuff is good stuff. Like there's a lot of truth and things that you would agree with and disagree with within the same post, probably forever. Like there's very few people that I completely disagree with in every regard, every single thing that they say. Um, Very, I don't know if there's anything. Like somebody's going to say something that I'm like, yeah, you know, I agree with that too. So imagine somebody who doesn't have any type of contextual background for this stuff, trying to differentiate between facts and myths, and you can help them, but then they're going to forget, which part was the myth and which part was the fact that, that you guys had talked about. So um, it, it, it's just tough. And it kind of comes back to us just being consistent and patient in our approach and, and picking the type of educational approach that we can sustain a, as educators. Yep.
1: And don't forget, they spent that hour with you on Monday. And then Monday through Friday, they spent an hour with Dr. Oz on TV. <laughs> So That's your boy. You, you get conflicting information
0: thrown at you all the time. Yeah, other family stuff. members telling them something. Mm-hmm. And,
2: and uh, here's another shameless plug: is like, you know, <laughs> I, I constantly think about this, and I try not to get too boiled down to this rabbit hole. But like, you know, if we're, ta- if we're thinking about it in like a probability way, and kind of like a Bayesian sense, is like, you know, how. How dense is that probability that they have learned, you know, X, Y, and Z, and like how much is it going to take to shift that probability of making them a little less rigid in their thinking, a little more flexible in their thinking? And um, you know, it it makes it possible, but it doesn't make it easy. You know, I, I think like it opens up doors, but it doesn't make it any easier for us. Well,
0: look at our look at our journey as clinicians. All all uh, four of us can probably say in the last five years. Our thought processes have evolved and and shifted, but that wasn't an abrupt change. There's no line of demarcation. It's like when you look at mountains from afar, it looks to you like the mountains just jut up straight from the ground. But when you drive towards the mountains, all of a sudden you're at the top of the mountain. You're like, holy shit, how did that happen? you know it's a it's a gradual it's a gradual change uh-huh. uh, and there and there's ups and downs within that you know you're going up and down but you don't realize that you're slowly elevating the entire time it's it's that's kind of the the case here too so it's hard to the for the person to really know when there's a shift in their change and for us to know when there's a shift in their change it all happens so slowly and there's forward and backward steps so um, we just got to k- just, just keep doing your best, everyone. <laughs> keep climbing the mountain. Yeah. yeah. Step by step. <laughs> just go squat.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, what do you think I do all day? It's like, yeah, we, yeah, we make them squat. And then like the three minute rest, we just talk about, you know,
0: philosophy. Yeah. That's fantastic. We, you might as well get strong in the meantime. Exactly. <laughs> we're all gonna die, right, Jaren? <laughs> that's right, Quinn. We are. We're all just stardust, man. Um, <laughs> On the, that bombshell. Yeah, the, uh, the order of time. Carlo uh, Rovelli, is a theoretical physicist. That's that's just confirmed my thought processes that we're just everything is everything is stardust and everything is significant, but nothing is significant. Time is not what you think it is, and just go squat. <laughs> 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 oh, there's Laughing, poetic saying. over here. Yeah, don't even start
1: me on time, huh? Dude, <laughs> you have enough reading, Mike. We'll have to Oh, man. <laughs> um,
0: well, excellent. Good talk, guys. Yeah. Mike Mike gave his uh student his, his patient. How do you think he's doing right now?
2: Uh, I checked the
0: bottom. Them. they were doing. They're doing fine. You yeah, because uh, I I taught him how to think. <laughs> hey, there you go. You're so good. You're awesome. <laughs> no, You're an awesome teacher. Not. You're the man. <laughs>
1: you <gotta look> <laughs> before <laughs> the misinformation happens. Uh, All right.
0: Fine. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks, guys. This was an awesome combo. Um, hopefully, we didn't. Hopefully, it wasn't too doom and gloom for people. I think it just highlights the complexity of this whole thing. You know it's yeah. just yeah. reality. Um, uh, Mike, where can people find you?
2: Uh, on Instagram, I have uh, Michael Viamato and I mostly just post stories about obscure articles and books. And you can always reach me there.
3: <laughs> but you squat
2: sometimes too. I do.
1: I do. That's been fun. Mike's getting strong, man. Yeah, he is. i trying that constraints led coaching.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I've been uh, me and my coach have a good thing going. I've been picking uh, Kevin's brain quite a bit lately. Yeah, he's been reaching out
0: to me about that. Yeah. I like, like him. Who the fuck is this John guy? <laughs> <laughs> is
2: he cute You know <laughs> him? Is he good? Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Jared, where can people find
3: you? Um, on Instagram, it's uh, Jared Maynard underscore PT. That's probably the main place. I'm on Facebook, but Instagram's your better bet.
1: John? Also, Instagram, uh, Rebuild Stronger Online. And that's awesome. pretty much it. Cool. See, you can definitely go on the Clinical Athlete Forum
0: and find all Yeah, yeah buddy. Well, awesome convo, guys. We we'll look forward to the next uh, topic that we can't explain, questions that we can't answer. <laughs> and an entire episode yeah. of I Don't Know.
1: We'll, we'll see you next only time. If it comes with, only if it comes with Quinn's poetry, too. Hey, there you go.